Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Make You Talk with me, Al Murray and James Holland. And we're very lucky, sweltering here in uh, where I am in London right now. But we're joined by someone from far away, Jim. Who have we got today? Well, I'm really pleased about this one. Um, we, we've been trying to get Eri on, Eri Hotter on for a long time. And that we've, it's taken this long is entirely our fault, not Eri's, as yes. he said. He, he responded <laughs> very warmly and enthusiastically to my first entreaty. Um, and then we kind of sort of one date passed and nothing happened and then yeah. another and then another. But anyway, we're finally here. Um, and Eri is the author of a book called Japan 1941, uh, Countdown to Infamy. And Al, you read this first yeah. and then and then put it put me onto it. And it's a, it's a it's just such a fascinating book because I think it's the first time that anyone has properly gone into why did Japan go to war? Because there's so many on so many levels it just makes absolutely no sense at all. And people have d- dealt with this this subject, and of course it's 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 been written about in the past, but not in this kind of very very intricate detail and looking at all the different personalities and it, it, it's the countdown to war but it's the countdown to war that we've never had before this book came out and um it's just fascinating so eri you're you are extremely welcome and thank you for coming on thank you for having me so excited to talk to you too i uh, i mean i i i as james says i i, I read this read this first and sort of tucked it away in my mind because of our inevitable, or or is it inevitable, our Anglo-centric perspective that we've had on things. But nevertheless, the war in the East obviously does involve the British. But we've we've never, to get get such an interesting and uh, sort of case-by-case and person-by-person depiction of the characters, the players involved, the politics, how it unfolds, um, was was quite extraordinary to, to, to come across because... A thing we've talked about in the podcast uh, often is Japan's complete misapprehension of America and what America might do in the event of um, an attack. Uh, how did you come to the subject? Well, I came to the subject from a completely personal um, perspective because um, I went to American high school for the last two years uh, of high school and I was sitting in this U.S. history class and the topic of the day was Pearl Harbor (laughs) and a classmate classmate sort of um, very casually asked me, Eri, why did you attack us? And my initial instinct was I didn't attack Pearl Harbor. (laughs) But then I started thinking, why did Japan attack Pearl Harbor at all? I mean, it was such a lopsided war, irrational war. A country goes to war usually thinking that it has a pretty good chance of winning. Otherwise, it makes no sense. And that sort of questioning sort of was at the back of my mind when I studied history in university and international relations at the graduate level. And when it came time to write a PhD thesis, I felt that I really had to tackle some aspects of this puzzle. I didn't directly write on this, uh, but it was sort of brewing in my mind. And about 15 years ago, I started writing it. And I think I it took me 
maybe six years to really make sensible the actors, institutions, and different motives, and also people speaking different things. I mean, the same person could be pro-war or、um, anti-war at the same time, depending on where he's speaking or to whom he's speaking, and、um, it made no sense. So it was a great historical puzzle that I felt that I really needed to solve in my mind. For my own sanity. <laughs> well, this was this was the thing that struck me when I read it. Was the point you made、um, you make in the book? I think fairly early on, where you say, depending on depending on where people were speaking and who they were speaking to, they would they would tailor what they were saying almost completely to their audience. And so you'd you'd have people who'd who'd say to each other, right, that next meeting, I'm going to tell them how it is, and then they'd say something. Completely at odds with what what they said their position was, and that ev. Which is well, quite Johnsonian, but everyone, everyone, second guessing themselves as well as each other the entire entire time. So there's、right. no no wonder no one can arrive at sort of clear、um, decisions because they're because they're cancelling themselves out all, all the time. Yes. yes, I think that's a, a very accurate description of what was going on at the highest level of decision making, which is quite irresponsible because. The highest decision-making circle should be debating things like war entry or occupation of southern Indochina, which was、yeah. the one of the you know big events that triggered the downward spiral in my mind.、Um, so I think、uh, I think coupled with that dynamic is the idea that responsibility was shared and diluted by a group of individuals. Top leaders, about a handful, about、uh, maybe a dozen, depending、mm-hmm. on how you count. But my story, my book, would have been so much easier to write if the common notion of you know Japan being a military dictatorship or Emperor Hirohito being a dictator—it's not at all. <laughs> It's too complicated for me to really explain in neat sentences. But I think one thing to remember: the first thing to remember is that. Japan was formally divided into two governments at this point because of the Meiji Constitution, which allowed the military to advise the emperor, who is also the supreme commander of the armed forces, independently of the government, and the civilian government, which also included navy and、um, army ministries,、uh, they can also advise and make formulate policy. So. You know the Meiji Constitution gave this power of independence of supreme command、um, to the military, thinking that、uh, soldiers would not meddle with politics, and they would just advise the emperor on tactical matters. But、uh, when the militarization and kind of nationalization, ultra nationalization, started happening after nineteen thirty one. I think、uh, that was used as a as a kind of carte blanche to, for for the military to stall government decision. I, I, I mean, this is an interesting no- notion, isn't it? Because constitutions, after all, only work if people、um, all agree on how they work. And you can you can have what you want in place, but if people aren't prepared to play the play by the the su- supposed rules, they they won't work. And and that's、yeah. that's really what's going on here, isn't it? Is that this that the the the, the、um, 
emperor has been restored at the end of the 19th century as an institution. So you've got this, you've got this, but but as a sort of blank page, and they've they've written things onto the onto him constitutionally, and actually then people do whatever they by by 1931 yes. they're doing whatever they want. Um, yes. I'm paying lip service to the idea of a constitution, but there aren't the checks and balances only work if people abide abide by them, right? Exactly, and I mean that's true with any any yeah. laws and yeah. international laws. And I mean I'm reminded of how Japan left the League of Nations after the Manchurian incident. Yeah, of course they didn't want to be penalized within that forum, international forum, and that was more sort of a deep seated or longer term cause for. The Pacific War, but it didn't really necessitate that Japan attacked the United States at that point. But of course, with the hindsight, the benefit of the hindsight, yeah, we know that that was the beginning. And Eri, d- yeah. tell us a little bit about Hirohito. And, and, and personally, I mean, we can only guess. I mean, very few people knew him personally well enough to sort of uh, you know depict him as a kind of a, a person <laughs> or approachable. Um, statesman or um, monarch, uh, I think, but, but from what we can glean at, I think he was very much uh, taken to liberal internationalism because that's the kind of cre- creed of the day when he was growing up. And he took a grand tour of Europe when he was turning 20 and was very much, uh, he came back to Japan becoming, having converted to sorts of uh, uh, British system of constitutional monarchy. And he really desired to be that kind of uh, a ruler, um, reign but not rule kind of ruler. And also he was very affected by the devastations of World War I, the, the battlefield that he witnessed in Belgium. So I think he was at heart pacifist but he also knew that because his constitutional role was to to be above politics, he was essentially ex machina. Um, he shouldn't intervene politically too much. And his closest advisor tended to warn him against that too. So his role was very much com- conflicted. He was at once a kind of a keeper of Shintoism, sort of animistic, a religion that was based on uh, ancestral worship and all that. But then he was also supposed to embody modernity mm. that Japan was striving for since 1868. And this is the Meiji Revolution. As the supreme commander. The Meiji Restoration. Yes, the Meiji Revolution. Restoration, yeah. not revolution. Restoration, restoration from yeah. above, <laughs> yes. Wow. So I think his role was uh, intrinsically conflicted because he was supposed to embody modernity and um, Japan's ancient greatness at the same time. Well, the other thing that strikes, struck me so clearly is is that on the one hand, you've got this sort of rising urban population in in in, in Japan, which is full of poets and writers and journalists and people who are going to see you know cinema shows and do modern kind of fairly Western style things um, to pass the time of day, and yet there's these absolute horrors going on in. Shanghai and Nanking and elsewhere, and this sort of really unbelievably racist attitude to the to the um, Chinese, where you know they're being butchered and raped and murdered and treated as as not second class citizens, but treated like you know 
animals to the slaughter. And, and, and you know, how do you, how does one marry those two attitudes together? It just seems completely paradoxical, really. I think it is paradoxical. And also, I mean, it, to what extent that kind of brutality on the continent could be explained as a kind of a um, soldiers going astray and not having leadership or no, I'm not sure. Or is it in human nature to be that way when absolutely pressed? Well, we've seen it in Butcher, haven't we? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I was thinking of. You know, it's, there's, not, so... there's, not, there's not a massive leap, is there? But, but... No, no, unfortunately not. Um, so I, but also Japan was not an open democracy to the extent that, uh, well, information from China was very selectively reported ever since the Manchurian incident when Japan's field army in the Northeast they conquered some provinces in, in Manchuria, China's northeast. Yeah. So um, the newspapers started selling more, you know, newspapers, uh, more copies because it sort of boosted national pride and um, really it, it sold war in Kahoot with the, with the military. So in the kind of self-censorship had already started in 1931. So there's, so there's sort of... Politics. I mean, you. I mean, you talk about that contrast, Jim, between you know, sort of a bourgeois life um, uh, uh, in Japan itself, and then what the army's getting up to. Are there sort of? Is it is it fair to say there are sort of two Japans running in parallel? The, the militarized military one that's doing sort of making the running politically and forcing the other Japan to go along with it, or what? What's what's the overlap and what's the What's the sort of uh, complicity of the other Japan in, in this? Right. That's a nice way of visualizing it. I think, I think you're right that, yes, there are sort of two Japans living parallel lives. And I think the overlap might be the emperor, sort of the emperor worship that generations of Japanese by then had been you know, raised and sort of like religion believed in. Um, Another aspect is this idea of Asia, self-serving idea of Asian freedom and how Japan was to be the regional leader who'd uh, you know, lead the rest of Asia out of Western imperialism and colonialism. And for the rest of Asia to be successful, they had to be more like Japan. So it's a very chauvinistic, but also paternalistic and um, colonialist and everything else, but and, and, uh, and in a way American, perhaps. Yes, uh, or certainly a reflection <laughs> of a reflection of Japan's um, uh, understanding of America, what America is, how American power yes. works, what yes. sort of American man. It's like a manifest destiny idea, isn't it? Right. Yes, and also moral doctrine was yeah. invoked by many Japanese nationalists and pan-Asianists um, who wanted to exercise Japanese influence to the rest of the region. And, yeah. you know, they themselves really saw Japan as the preordained leader. I mean, otherwise, how do you explain the, the fact that it escaped colonialism and it became modern and industrialized nation in such a short time and yeah. it won two modern wars, one against uh, Jin China and the other one against Tsarist Russia, yeah. white power. Yeah, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm still sort of, so intrigued by this sort of dichotomy between, you know, 
Japanese troops on on the eastern seaboard of China and uh, and what life is like at home and and you you make this really really important point that it's it, it's not a dictatorship this is this is not you know this is not totally dominating um society in a way that the Nazis do or or even Mussolini's Italy for example or or even communist Soviet Union you know so your your average family you know um in their late 30s parents um kids sort of you know teenagers living in Tokyo they're pretty free they can they can do whatever they like can they I mean you know there's, there's no real yes. restrictions on them or anything yes. yes and you know I think at least in urban circles you know people are getting more and more education and people are reading in different languages and um, the irony of the Pacific War is that um towards the end of the war of course you know about the kamikaze pilots yes. the suicidal squadron those pilots were chosen out of uh, often uh, universities the most select universities uh, arts and letters faculties wow. because they were dispensable <laughs> they were not engineers or doctors so these pilots often wrote and you know read in several languages and including classical chinese as well and they were such cultivated bunch and of course um they knew that you know they were going to die but they also wanted to die for more elevated cause than just uh, um misguided leadership so they sort of attached deeper meaning like uh, Asian freedom or for the poetic beauty of, uh, you know, short life, you know, sacrificing their lives for the rest of nature. Yeah, but even so, it's still it's still so hard to kind of get your head around that, isn't it? Oh, and yeah. a, a, point, a point you make in the book that's really interesting is that, because after all, I think an impression that we may have is that Japan's a militarised society... That, 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 you know, you can bracket it alongside the, you know, the, the totalitarian Nazi state. But it's, but there are, there's much more going on than that. I really love the thing you talk about when they change, they change the um, military service laws, which gradually, gradually sort of alter and adjust so that shorter and shorter people can join the <laughs> army, um, older and older people can join the army, your, 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 your reservist duty gets longer and longer, and all these sort of, all these Very sort of, tr- all these tricks that states play when, they're basically, when they're in real trouble and they're running out of people. Mm. But then this, this thing you talk about people drinking supersized bottles of soy sauce <sighs> before their physical, so they get a heart yes. murmur or heart failure or whatever, and and can get out of the draft. And we're, we're often encouraged to think of the fanatical Japanese yeah, soldier. Like because, they're like because, ants, because so after do all, what they're told, you know. Well, uh, well, and also because after all, and a lot of that springs from the fact that the British and Americans, when they first ran into the Japanese, were, were couldn't tie their own bootlaces anyway. They were rem- astonishingly incompetent, <laughs> poorly prepared, had a, no idea of what the Japanese army might be capable of, let alone taken into account what the terrain was like to fight in. So we have this idea of the sort of, you know, the, 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 the tough, wiry Japanese t- super soldier who does as he's told, but here you have people trying to get off the physical, right. but, but, you know, with, with home remedies and all this sort of thing. And it, what, what's, re- what's really fascinating about your book is it really does, it, 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 you, pick, you pick away at that. And, and, and in your introduction, you say, you know, this isn't revisionist history. I'm not going back to... to to Japan to excuse it. We, how else can we explain what's going on if we don't actually investigate it properly? If we tell ourselves stories about what Japan was like and they're not true, 
They're not. They're not really what's going on. We'll never learn anything. And I'm. Re- I, I was so struck by that. And also the, you know, the the individual, um, you know, accounts of people being disgusted by war in China mm. and revolted by what was going on and not wanting to get involved in the atrocities and all this sort of stuff that breaks the picture, the, the uniform picture we have of the Japanese soldier. And therefore, Japan, Japan's appetite for war and appetite for um, prosecuting a war. So that there's more going on, that there are people who aren't keen and that, that you have at the top an inability of people to communicate with each other about what they really think adds to the irony, really, and the paradox of what's going on. Thank you. I, I, I hope it worked. My oh, sort of bringing in different perspectives, but um, yeah, just in terms of uh, bringing in multifaceted perspectives, I was so happy when I found that um, the account that was left by Soldier Yu, yeah, yeah, uh, because his sort of uh, stretched military career was very much the the reflection of what you just discussed, yeah, but how conscription laws get. Uh, revised and manipulated and yeah. at the ripe age of 37 or 8 he finally comes home he saw china and he also saw southeast asia so yeah. his perspective was really broad too yeah. and i mean that kind of uh, common man's perspective or common soldier's perspective was so refreshing to me as i did the research um, what was more dispiriting was looking at official records of uh, conference records where nobody is owning up to anything and sort of you're trying to pass the buck and trying to blame somebody else and you know leaders of for instance army leaders wanting navy leaders to say they can't fight just because you know they don't want to be the only ones being publicly humiliated Uh, having to withdraw from China, for instance. I mean, that sort of petty calculations uh, over Japan's real national interest or, you know, its citizens' safety really baffled me and depressed me to no end. So... Uh, uh, And what what do you think is the wellspring of that? What's what's making that happen? What's causing that dialectic that that means that... Right. Uh, Well... I don't want to blame it on culture. I mean, culture can explain, but it's more complicated than that. Yeah. It's the political culture that was enabled by evasiveness and um, kind of nuances in the language. But also, it all comes down in the end to leaders not having the metal, yeah. really. I mean, I, I just I thought, I thought that, you know, obviously two of the key characters are, are Kono, is that how you pronounce his name? Konoi and um, the prince, and, and then Tojo, of course, and and the, well, the, these I'm, two towering figures, and yet they, I, I thought Konoi was 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 more um, more a dove than 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 he seems to have been um, in your book, and I thought that Tojo was an out and out hawk without any kind of you know second <laughs> thoughts about what he was, you know that that's how I'd kind of sort of read, read into it. And again, he's a much more nuanced character, which I thought was just fascinating. I mean, really, I mean, well, it's, but, it's, but then. But then in the mix as well, people like Matsuoka, who are who are going all over the world, sort of uh, trying to do deals and project Japanese ideas of power. But actually, he's sort of more interested in performing for people. Yes. And he's got this this sort of feeling of an actor 
who uh, literally an actor on the world stage trying to trying to perform for everybody rather than rather than really think about what he's doing strategically you know he stumbles from situation to situation making promises left right yes. and center you know signing neutrality pacts with the soviet union without really considering what the impact of that that how that might pan out for him later and all that sort of stuff it's i mean it's it's really really interesting that the you know these the, you know he's He's in he's in Berlin with crowds shouting Heil Hitler Heil Matsuoka. It's it, it's it's quite ex, it's quite extraordinary. It's part and it's part of the diplomatic picture that we don't often we don't often look at in 1941 because our focus is on the sort of inevitability of Barbarossa happening in yeah. in in the summer of 1941 and not what's going on. You know the what he's up to in April of that year, trying to sort of sort out Japan's relationship with the Germans. Uh, and and enjoying the attention yeah. rather than um, oh. anything else. I mean, he's an extraordinary character. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Eric, could do, for for those who are not familiar with these these titans of Japan, mm-hmm. the Japanese politics at the time. <laughs> I mean, can you can you just tell us a little bit about who each of them is right. and 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 the part they play in this evolving story? Well, I don't think they're titans of Japan, especially Konoe and Tojo that were mentioned uh, by James. Uh, well, all right, but, but, but major, major uh, political uh, yes, players. major players. Major players rather well, than titans. Yes, uh, I think major players were major players because they were weak, <laughs> in my mind. Yeah, that's what I find so interesting. But yeah, I'm interrupting. Yeah. Sorry. Yes, Prince Konoe, who was uh, maybe the leader. Um, for three years out of four years leading up to um, to he's the Prime Minister, Pearl Harbor, he? on and off. He's a prime minister for that uh, duration, on and off. I mean, he, he forms three cabinets, but he was responsible for the intensification of the China war when it first spiraled out of control in the summer of 1937. He thought that it was going to be a very swift victory for Japan. Oh, it that turned before. out to be... Japan's yeah. Vietnam War. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. So he he's um, because he was such a high-born prince, uh, he was sort of considered the second emperor. That position of prime ministership was really a step down for him. Right. But he was also taken to politics because he felt that Japan he was basically a Japanese chauvinist. Um you know, really espoused Marxian principles when he was in university, reading philosophy, but he also loved the kind of totalitarian, fascistic political style as well. So he was, uh, he could sway from extreme right to extreme left, but not in between. He was not a liberal Democrat at all. So that kind of person was in charge for the three years being three of the four years leading up to Pearl Harbor. But he was also famous for not really voicing his innermost feelings because he was basically a um, kind of operator who preferred to do behind-the-scenes decision-making and really blame others when things didn't go his way. So that's how he maximized his longevity in the top political office as well. So when it became sort of apparent belatedly to him that United States is not going to give him an opportunity to, to meet with Roosevelt to have a summit meeting in the in the early fall, late summer, early fall of 1941, he gave up. And that's when Tojo, his army minister, 
is appointed the next prime minister. And he was the one who declared war. Um, but uh, he was also a conflicted character. He seemed Yeah, much more so than I appreciated, I have to say. Yeah. So the first job that he sets for himself when he was appointed prime minister by the palace is to reconsider this uh, September 6th decision, which was about uh, setting a time, a, a deadline to diplomacy. And this is uh, September start mobilizing. 41, September 41. So uh, deadline of, I think, early October, deadline was set by that decision. And uh, diplomacy is not going to uh, take care of uh, U.S.-Japan relations. Japan has to attack within the year because you know, the resources to wage war is dwindling and so on and so forth. But, of course, the military was not ready to launch a war at all. So, and and it's the Navy, not the Army, where Tojo was from, that had to do the bulk of the fighting. So he's really, you know, doing this tough talk publicly, but he's so unsure. And he also knows that the palace, the emperor that he worshipped was against war as well. So he sets for himself this series of liaison meeting between the high command and the civilian government, reconsidering different scenarios. What happens if we go to war now? What happens if we wait? What happens if we pursue diplomacy and war options in peril? And the third option is the one that they finally adopted with a revised deadline. But it's still a short deadline because everything had to be done by the end of November. (laughs) which the Washington diplomats, of course, found impossible to meet. Yeah. We need to take a quick break right now. We'll be back in a second. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me and James. We're talking to Eri Hotter about Japan. It feels like uh, there's this, like you say, deadlines that are impossible to meet. Is there a is there a juncture at which th- th- these people making these decisions in this culture, in this set of circumstances, could have come to a different conclusion and decided not to try to fight America? Or, or do you think, do you, I mean, is it an, an, one of your chapters is called An Unwinnable in- Inevitable War. Is it inevitable or... or do you think is there is is there a point of no return in this Jap- Japanese trajectory, or is or, or or is there a possibility to not go ahead? I I tend to think that nothing was inevitable. Yeah, <laughs> that there were many turning points. Um, even just looking at the one year leading up to war, I mean, why did Japan hastily sign tripartite pact? Yeah. Uh, with Hitler and Mussolini. And, you know, Konoe starts regretting it. And, of course, um, Konoe starts regretting it uh, because he, is uns- he didn't quite see the ideological impact yeah. it had. Um, I think Matsuoka was very much a, um, you know, real politic kind of guy. He was... Operating, he, he was operating on the principle of um, power politics and yeah. thinking that the more 
um, camp you have in your alliance, even if they were fascist powers, yeah. um, Washington will be intimidated enough to come to negotiating table. That's yeah. that was the kind of reasoning behind this triple alliance, and then you know Stalin joins that kind of a loose alliance in in early spring of 1941 as well, but nothing really happened as a result of the alliance making. And yeah. of course, people in Tokyo started wondering, people who knew much less about outside world. The thing about Matsuoka is that he grew up in America partly from age 13 to 22, went to University of Oregon. He spent most of the time on the West Coast. So his experience might have been different had he lived on the East Coast, but he of course, you know, lived through all the prejudices and kind of uh, racial discrimination and had this weird um, worldview, not weird, but uh, kind of um, very fixed worldview that if you are bullied, you have to fight back. Yeah. So that was kind of at the, that was the underlying theme behind his kind of strong headed, hard nosed uh, power political uh, diplomacy uh, based on basically brinksmanship. Yeah. And, and of course, Tokyo, people in Tokyo started wondering, you know, Matsuoka seems to know a lot about how, you know, public relations work and how international conferences work, but America has not come to, to us asking for negotiation. And this informal conversation that was started was a result of uh, amateur Japanese amateur diplomats so trying, and also Catholic priests on the American side trying to, to um, establish peace between the two countries. So Matsuoka had nothing to do with it. So, so on the one hand, that kind of uh, new diplomatic uh, channel was being developed in Washington. Um, and then here is Matsuoka, who's bombastic and kind of really a bit crazy, um, who has to be contained, but Conway being, you know, really averse to co open confrontation, doesn't really say, "Oh, you should, you better resign." Um, so he take months, so about two months, trying to make him resign. And when he felt that he couldn't do it, uh, the cabinet, the whole cabinet, resigned, forcing the ouster of this. Uh, um, really unpredictable for a minister, Matsuka. But obviously one of the problems of brinkmanship is that, <laughs> that it takes you to the brink and and it's very easy to yeah. slip over the edge of it, isn't it? And, and that's what's happening think, here. It's, yeah. it's just it's this... Yes. I mean, I, I, I was just fascinated by this, this notion that everyone knows that if they go to War of America and, and, and the Allies, that, that it's a suicide mission, that there's very little chance of them ever winning and it's going to end badly and yet they can't help themselves they, they just get sucked into this yes they get entrapped by their sort of uh bellicose rhetoric yes. and of course and with the timetable embedded in that rhetoric of course you have to follow that timetable as a soldier <laughs> so i think it's uh yeah they they really made themselves sort of believed that it was inevitable and it was kind of forced on them. 
yeah. from the other side. But of course, you don't launch an offensive attack because the other side made you do it. I mean, it took months of planning to <laughs> uh, come up with a plan. Would, would you consider Yamamoto a, 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 a titan or would you consider him just another? I think, yes, I think, um, I think titan titles should be reserved uh, for Yamamoto and maybe to an extent Matsuoka, just because he did so much damage and <laughs> he, but, but he did so much damage. Uh, both of them knew that Americans would not give up yep. until Japan is completely crushed and wanted to avert war. Because um, Yamamoto spent a lot of time in the US, hadn't he? Yeah. We should just explain, he's the head of the Navy, the Japanese Yes, yes. Uh, he's the head of Combined Fleet, uh, who also acted as vice Navy minister um, in the earlier, two years earlier, mm. uh, before Pearl Harbor. But because he was so politically uh, vocal and, for instance, spoke against the tripartite pact, the signing of the Triple Alliance, uh, his superiors feared for his life. So he was sort of, not demoted, but he was um, put on uh, uh, more strategic planning end of the Navy. So he he was made the commander of combined fleet, in which capacity he had to plan for war the best he could. He was also a gambler. Matsuka was also a gambler. Yeah. Yamamoto and Matsuka had those uh, risk takers kind of um, temperaments yeah. um, in common, I think. Both had open temperaments. Uh, both were very kind of um, risk-takers risk in the sense that I think they were really excited in some bizarre way by the notion that the slimmer the chance, the sweeter the victory. Yes, yes, yes. So I think they were driven by that kind but of... Uh, but that's also bonkers, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's... Especially, yes, it's bonkers. Because that's the absolute antithesis of the, of the Allied view, which is... As the war progresses increasingly and as their supplies go, don't don't risk anything unless you know you're going to win. But Yamamoto, similar to Matsuoka, in, the, in that he's putting on a performance, isn't he, as well? Because he has war injuries, um, doesn't he? Right. Um, and is, right, I almost forgot about that, yes. And, and has oh, you're right. Three fingers on on one of his hands. Left hand. Um, and, and he's always trying to show that it hasn't affected him, so he learns to catch a ball with his left hand, and all this, even though he's right-handed, all this sort of stuff to try and not reveal uh, his weakness or his tr truth about himself and sort of puts, up, puts on a display. It, 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 not dissimilar to Matsuoka, this idea that... that and and this, 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 is, this feeds into this culture of you're never going to admit you're wrong, you're never going to admit the war's a terrible idea. Better to go to war than admit you're making a mistake, <laughs> which is the most, ex the most extraordinary... Yes. Uh, and... and you know, this isn't this isn't Japan. This is this happens again and again in hum, in history anyway. But he's a he's a good bluffer, isn't he? And he's a good gambler and and all this sort of stuff. And and the moment you know that about him, Pearl Harbor. Well, it's a gamble, isn't it? You roll the dice and you hope that you hope that you come up with with sixes and that the Americans um, uh, can't answer you. And it and of course he doesn't roll 
two sixes, he rolls sort yeah. of two fours or something. I mean, <laughs> at best. <laughs> You're right. You're right. And also the problem with Pearl Harbor was that, of course, with the sneak attack, you, you might win initial battles, but I mean, the, who dictates the peace? I mean, you are completely dependent on the other side to sue for peace. And Americans, as Yamamoto knew all along would not sue for peace until they have an upper hand. Yep, so yep. so it was really uh, premised on uh, false uh, kind of idealistic uh, yeah. well, fantasy scenario. Yeah. Harry, can I ask you something about sources yes. and about where you, where you research? I mean, uh, you know, I'm looking at the, uh, the Shenshi Soshu, which is, which is partly translated, which is this epic official history of Japan's war, and it goes to over 100 volumes and... I think volume 16 or something like that is is Imphal and Kahima, for example. But but incredibly detailed, full of lots of after-action, based on after-action reports and all sorts of stuff. But, I mean, where where does one go? Is it, You know, obviously in America you've got various institutions and libraries. You've got the National Archives and Records Administration. Over yeah. here we've got the... Uh, we've got Q and we've got the Imperial War Museum and so on and so forth. I mean, wh where does one go to, to research a book like right. this? Right. Um... Because the surviving records are so limited, um, and you know the Sugiyama memorandum that I cite yes. all the time to to uh, have a glimpse into the conferences, and the proceedings, um, they've been published for a long time. So I, I could purchase like uh, how many volumes, um, eight volumes of right. it, and just you there know consult them. Yeah. So it was actually. Because I was dealing with already pre-selected materials, that part of the research, I mean, I, I could even sort of travel with my books right. um, and cross the Pacific and, and still write the book. Um, but I think, of course, because of the things that are left unsaid in those conference yeah. memos, yeah, I had to fill in the gap, and also I wanted to bring in as many perspectives as possible. So, um, yes, I did random research in local libraries where my parents live in Tokyo, and sometimes came up with like a treasure, like oh, really? diary of a. Yeah. So there are, in, if, you know, if one goes to Tokyo, there are, you, you can dig out diaries and books and memoirs yes, and, and stuff that exist. Of, yes. And uh, all bookstores, secondhand right. bookstores are really, I mean, this industry hasn't died. I mean, it's its diminishing, but it's still a, a great place to hunt for all books. Right. So, and what about Soldier U? So, and the you? internet, of course. Soldier U was off of the internet. I think really? there was a um, kind of a, 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 an effort to bring about different recollections of war and people i mean i think his family uploaded the diary after he died oh, because right. they didn't know anything about yeah. his experience but he was writing about it in his spare time towards the end of his life and uh, and, and his is one of those sources you can read and and take take pretty much as it is unlike unlike these official documents where right. cabinet cabinet meetings where no one's no one is saying no what they're really. No one mind. says what they're really thinking, and there's no way of ever knowing what they really think or what their right. intentions truly are. Ap apart from the surface intention of of trying right. to trying to act like they're in, in agreement with each other. I right. mean, it, it, yes. Absolutely extraordinary. Yes. I mean, you when you read Brit you know the British cabinet papers or stuff like that, you get you do get some of that's going on because yep. people are politicking, but not to such a sort of 
there is disagreement. There are, there are, you know, that the, 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 there is there is disagreement, and people are are falling out with each other. But it's, I mean, that, that's that that must have been extremely difficult to to try because you're sort of trying to read read the runes, aren't you? You're trying to you're trying to yes. You need a yes, divining and, rod. <laughs> and because it's a memo that was written like after the fact, and you know, yeah. people were jotting down things from the memory or the memory of Sugiyama, the yeah. um, army chief, um, and the different people are jotting them down at different times. So it's not, it's just not consistent. The tone is not consistent. And also there's nothing to indicate, well, sometimes a little bit, but nothing really to indicate the atmosphere of the room or or what kind of table they're sitting at or anything. So I think for those I needed to um, introduce memoirs and different people's uh, diaries, but of course, these come with their own biases and prejudices yeah, yeah. as well. So, and and how is the how's the war viewed in Japan today? I mean, I, uh, it's it's complicated, obviously. Well, do we need to do another episode on that? Yes, Harry? I think I think so. I think so. I I might have to write another book on that. Um, before that, uh, well, I think the the war is viewed with regret, especially because of the or the devastations that it brought Japan. <laughs> People in Japan, because Japan became such a, an important Cold War ally um, to the United States, I think it's the whole devastations, even the atomic bombings that tend to be seen more like a natural calamities and peace is important, but they don't discuss how peace was to be maintained and you know people might have different notions of peace having uh, having an active army and navy in some people's mind is keeping peace but for many pacifists japanese um, who grew up i mean 80% or 90% of japanese population now have grown up in peacetime and they don't want to have much to do with it on the other hand they don't really they are divided about the use of nuclear power as well. So I think it's not, debating is not something many Japanese have been good at or have been brought up to do. So I, I'm just, I'm just so, so struck by, you know, this, this notion that, that, you know, the kind of 275,000 Japanese troops that were posted to the Philippines in, in the sort of second half of 1944, you know, there they are and they, they know they've got a suicide mission. They know that their job is just hold out until they die and, and they're killed yes. in battle or they starve or they die of some yes. ghastly fever. And it was the same for the people who were left abandoned on Guadalcanal. It's the same for yeah. the people on Iwo Jima. It's the same for the people on, it's the same for the people mm. on Peleliu, um, which I'm due to be visiting later on this year. And, and you know, oh. sort of 12,000 troops, and I think it's something like 62 survive, you know, taken prisoner, and everyone else is dead. And it's this sense of this sacrifice, this fact that people are willing to be sacrificed. Um, the, the, the grotesque numbers of Japanese troops that are, that are drowned en route to these islands they're supposed to be defending by, you know, US submarines and, and others. You know, how do you sort of get your head around that? It's that, that sort of totality of the, of, of the effort by, by so many Japanese young men who were, who were sent off to their, you know, inevitable early graves. I mean, the, you, you know, you have no hope. And, and I think that's the thing that I find just so hard to get my head around. 
and, and then you're reading your book where you're you're you know it isn't it, it sort of becomes increasingly inevitable but but everyone knows it's going to be this terrible disaster so there's this sort of this awful kind of sort of running to the cliff and jumping over it and it's just this collective jumping over the cliff that just it's so hard much of that society is caring and loving and and cultured and in the extreme and you putting those two together it just is so hard in a mm. way that I don't think it's hard to understand how people became Nazis. Mm. Do you think it has something to do with uh, being an island country as well Possibly. that if there's no chance of defecting and sort of if you do something that might touch the nerve of the authorities not only you, but your family is going to be implicated. Yeah. So there's this underlying fear that um, if if you get on the wrong side of the authorities, you, I mean, you and your loved ones are doomed. I think uh, I remember the film um, by Clint Eastwood, not everybody's favorite, oh, but Letters, Letters from yes, Iwo Jima. Yes. Yeah, I, I thought that was a masterpiece uh, in depicting the Japanese side of emotions and sort of, nuanced, unuttered pains. And uh, I thought that was actually one of the best war movies made from the Japanese perspective by an American. Right. <laughs> Fascinating. Because, uh, but, but at the end of the war, one of the things the Japanese government is sort of trying to do is make it as expensive as, as, as possible for America to bring the war to an end, isn't it? It's that the, the, the way to get out of unconditional surrender is to make the blood price for the Americans really, really high. But in order to do that, their own blood price is utterly sort of extravagant, for want of a better word. And that's the, that's the, very, and that's the disadvantage, of course, that, that starting a war by a sneak attack brings you, that, that, that you've then got to leverage yourself politically to the point where to get the peace you a piece, anything like re resembling what you want, you've really, you've got to inflict as much damage as you can on the enemy. And Japan can't even isn't in the position to do that, but still trying to do mm -hmm. that. It's like this gambling mentality con continues even to the to the very bitter end. And obviously, the Allied powers have thought, well, we've done this once in Germany. We are absolutely not going to put ourselves through this again um, on the Japanese mainland. There's just no way we're going to do that. And and I'm convinced that the decision to drop the atomic bombs comes from that. The Americans think, we just can't do that. We just cannot do this anymore. And they know what Japan's intentions are for for drawing the war out and causing as much bloodshed as possible. And I find I find even even articulating it difficult because these are concepts that are um, are so sort of monstrous in all directions that, that you know, saying them out loud is almost a, is almost mm -hmm. a, too appalling to contemplate. Do, do you know what I mean? Yes. Yeah, I just, I just think that yeah, the, it, the the tragedy of Japan's war is just yeah. is just so limitless. It's so hard, yeah. you know. And and I think, I think one of the things that you've done so brilliantly, Ari, is is make us consider afresh how we view the Japanese going into Second World War and 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 the, the complexities, the nuance, the the the, the problems of this rapidly emerging nation coming out of the Maiji restoration this this evolution of 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 into sort of a, a ultra nationalism all these different strands that are coming in and, and and almost sort of hurried forward aren't they it's like it's like a sort of steam train kind of hurtling down the track where where things are kind of 
outpacing the kind of the natural rate in which Japan should be developing because one thing's happened which has then led to this thing and, and then this has led to this and this has led to Manchuria which has then led to kind of Shanghai and uh, you know Marco Polo and and suddenly it's it's almost as though every time there's this surge forward in 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 events where Japan is involved it's almost sort of out of the control of the people that are kind of supposed to be controlling it and and they they can't quite keep a keep a, a tab on it and i think that's the great tragedy of it isn't it and, and and tragedies come about because of flawed people um flawed personalities and who aren't completely you know i suppose, I suppose the point is that you're not dealing with people who are completely and totally evil are you you know it's, it's not like hitler it's not like stalin it's 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 much more nuanced it's much more complex than that uh, and i think that that makes us think about japan in, in the second world war in a, in a different way and and you know that's all to be welcomed, really. Right. Well, it's almost a comedy if you if you don't think that it, it was something that happened. Yeah. <laughs> but yes. Well, yes, because it's a oh, it yeah. is a comedy of manners and a comedy of errors, yes. isn't it? That, yes. that, that, that there is very much that. I mean, the, the, I mean, and it's. I mean, you know, interesting. You talk about being an island, an island people. We're in this country. We're very used to saying things to each other's face that we don't mean. And the, the, the <laughs> British have a reputation for being polite, or, or, or they think they have a reputation for being polite, whereas the rest of the world just thinks they're being devious and um, and two-faced yes. because we say one we say one <laughs> we say one thing and mean another. You know that, that, that that's sort of the lingua franca of a British right. of Eng, British interaction. So it's so it you know it, it's not a vast leap of imagination to see that. Well, no, that's true, and that it, reminds it, me. It, I, it, I remember when I was at school, the deputy headmaster came up to me once and said, "I like your tie." Um, and right. anyway, I went, "Oh, thank you." <laughs> and later on that afternoon, he said, "When I said I like your tie, what I really meant was I want you to take it off and replace it with something more appropriate immediately." <laughs> Well, there it is. Well, there it is. <laughs> so maybe we're not so very different. <laughs> yeah, that's very funny. Yeah. Anyway. That is funny. Well, Eri, that's been just, it's, it's been it's fantastic been to get you on. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you for your forbearance. Pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Of course. <laughs> no, it's been a pleasure. Um, yes, and uh, I recommend um, uh, to our listenership that they that they... Get, get your book because it's yeah um, I do too Japan 1941 yeah. countdown to infamy um, and it's a it's a wonderful startling compellingly fascinating book that will make you rethink everything that you feel thought you knew about Japan in the Second World War that's my uh, that's my take on it anyway yeah, like put stick that on a dust cover yeah um, thanks everybody <laughs> thanks uh, Eri for joining us thanks everyone for listening we'll see you again soon bye bye cheerio Hello listeners, it's Anita Arnand here from the Goal Hanger sister podcast, Empire, which I host along with... Me, William Dalrymple, and we are here to tell you about our new series on the Founding Fathers, the men who made America. We wanted to look at the men who actually founded the country, who dreamt the dream, who wrote the words upon which a country would be born. What were they like? 
What made them do what they did? What did they actually believe in? And how did they come to play the role that they did in the American Revolution and the creation of America? What really interested me about this was the contradictions. I mean, we expect these men to be great figures. We've seen the portraits in the galleries. We, we know the faces from the banknotes, but they're deeply complex figures. But in that, and in that blend of contradiction and intellectual power and writing genius and curiosity and raw ability lies the nuance and complexity that allows us to understand them. And the United States is in many ways a reflection of them, their beliefs, their experiences. These are the men who wrote the Constitution. These are the men who created the federal system in every way. They are totally fundamental to what American politics looks like today. It all goes back to this extraordinary group of men. Yeah, and they have rip-roaring yarns as well, let me tell you. So if you want to know why America is the way it is and who the men were who made it, you can listen by searching Empire wherever you get your podcasts.